I'm going to talk about Jehovah Shalom. Most of you will, will recognize the word shalom as the Hebrew word for peace. And we're going to talk about some dimensions of that and some ideas that, are, um, that, that stem from the concept of shalom. It doesn't quite mean peace. It means a whole host of other things as well. And we're going to discuss those in the context of our, our text tonight. Let's turn to Judges 6. Um, this is the only time... Uh, that the name Jehovah Shalom is used. And this, this story is going to be super familiar to most of you. We'll start with chapter 6, verse 1. And the children of Israel, uh, you can take it down now. Merle, I'm embarrassed enough. Thank you. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. So a couple things here. Um, those of you that have uh, read the book of Judges, you know that it is a, uh, it, it's a kind of circle or spiral. The whole narrative or the whole story of it is, is a great circle, a series of them. Uh, the children of Israel having arrived um, in, the, in the promised land after the exodus, they get there. God tells them, drive out all the people that are in this land and possess it utterly. It's, it's yours. I gave it to you. And what they do instead is they settle. They say, eh, this is probably good enough. We're, we're kind of sick of fighting. So we're just going to hang out. We'll live. These people can live among us. They can live next to us. Um, it's fine. We're not going to do what God said. Uh, and so there's this continual cycle where they... Uh, mix with the people groups around them, even though God has told them to be separate. They start to worship the gods uh, of those people groups and to adopt their practices. Uh, they become oppressed by some force, usually one of those people groups. They cry out to God, and God sends a judge. Uh, and in this, in this case, a judge is not like a, a, a magistrate like we have. Like you go to the court and there's a judge. A judge is like a tribal leader. Um, and that happens 13 times in the book of Judges, and every time it gets worse and worse and worse. The judge is always more and more morally compromised. He's always a worse person. He always understands God less um, until you get to the end, uh, and there are these two sequences uh, where bad things happen uh, and nobody knows what to do, and you get this refrain, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So every, everybody was just making it up at the end. They didn't have any moral compass, any guidance, uh, any direction from God. Uh, they, they'd forgotten everything that they knew and everything that they learned and everything that God had told them. Uh, and we're kind of like right at the beginning of that here. Um, Gideon is like the fourth or fifth judge, depending on how you count. Um, and, but we find this happening again, right? They do evil in the sight of the Lord, and this people group, the Midianites, start to oppress them. Uh, and it's so bad, it says, right, that they, it says, uh, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel, this is verse 2, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Who, who lives in a den? An, an, yeah, an animal lives in a den, right? Like, people don't live in dens, but they, they've dug themselves into the mountains because they're hiding. And so it was when Israel had sown that the, that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. 
and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Uh, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But ye have not obeyed my voice. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite. And his son, Gideon, threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So notice what happens here, right? God explains to them exactly what's wrong. You came into the land. I I told you what to do in it and you disregarded what I said. And that's why you're being oppressed now. It's why you're being oppressed every time it happens. Um, And we find... Uh, in verse 13 or in verse uh, 11 we're introduced to Gideon and this is significant what he's doing it says uh, so he's the son of of Joash and it says uh, Gideon threshed wheat by the wine press to hide it from the Midianites Um, I suspect none of us are are farmers Uh, I know I'm not Um, but the place where you thresh wheat uh, is way up high right your wheat is uh, Right, it's a type of grass, and there's a stalk to it, and like a protective part, and you, you, beat the wheat, you beat the stalks of wheat against the ground, and what is called the thresh, or the inedible stalk, it falls off, and it blows, or that, that's the chaff, and it blows away. Um, so you want to do that up high, so the wind can carry off what you're doing, you won't get it all over you. Um, the wine press is, is down at the bottom of the hill. It's in a cave. So he's, he's, he's doing this hot, dirty, nasty work in a cave, right? Because he doesn't want to be found by the Midianites. He's hiding. So that should make what comes next pretty funny because the angel of the Lord appears unto him in verse 12 and says unto him, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Right? He's, he's hiding in a cave. Uh, and Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, If the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our father told us us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And now the Lord hath forsaken us, and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not thence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. Uh, and Gideon's like, wait just a minute, I want to do something. And the, Lord, and the angel of the Lord says, yeah, I'll wait right here. In 19, 
Uh, and Gideon went in and made ready a kid, uh, so a, a small calf, um, and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour. The flesh he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and brought it out unto him under the oak, and presented it. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and lay them upon this rock, and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand, and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And there rose up fire out of the rock, and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace, shalom, be, upon, be unto thee. Fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet an Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So a couple things. Um, we've got this story, right, that ends with Gideon creating an altar and calling it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Um, and I, I just a quick recap. I don't know if Tony's talked about this previously or not, or I kind of explore the idea of naming things. But um, in the ancient world, at least, um, there are there are a bunch of reasons why God has different names in different places, or why He's referred to as different things. Um, and they all really have to do with royalty and the way that um, the way that uh, gods and deities are thought of in, in the ancient world. Um, every ruler in the ancient world had a, a throne name or a regnal name. And that, that still happens today, right? Think of uh, like the Pope, who is a, really a ruler, right? The Pope always is always like, I, I think the current Pope is, is from Venezuela. He wasn't named Benedict when he was born. It's a name he selected as his throne name, his regnal name. Um, it symbolizes something about the office that he has. That's why there are, uh, you know, that's why Elizabeth, King, or Queen Elizabeth is Elizabeth II, right? Although her, her actual name was Elizabeth. When they asked her what name she wanted to be crowned under, she said, my own. Um, but she could have selected another one uh, that would have, it would have represented her stepping out of a private capacity and into a, a, a public capacity as a monarch. So that happens all the time in the ancient world. It's not unusual for people to have more than one name uh, or to have, have several names that they use in different circumstances. The second is location names. Um, in, in the ancient world, gods often had names that designated a place because a, a god could be the, the god of a, a people or the god of a place. So you find this all the time in the Old Testament when the god Baal is referred to. It'll be Baal hyphen Bareth or Baal hyphen wherever. Um, and that, that means that's the lord of that place, they think. Uh, and then finally, there are victory names, right? When, God, or when, when a king or a god sc scores a victory, they might call him by that, that name. That happened with people too. Um, the Roman general uh, Scipio Africanus is named that because he won a battle in Africa. And they said, well, that's your name now. So the, the key question when we find a different name in the Bible, what we need to ask ourselves is, okay, what's the context, right? The context is always king. We always have to ask ourselves, what's, what's the story about and how does, how does using this name advance the story in some way? 
Um, and then second, uh, what does it tell us about God's character? And that's really the important part of this story, right? Uh, Gideon identifies God as being central to the concept and idea of peace, or uh, shalom. So uh, we're going to return to the story in a moment because there are important things about judges that we, we really need to stress if we're going to uh, talk about shalom. But I, I want to talk about this concept of, of peace or shalom in more detail. That's, that's how we're going to understand what the name means in this particular instance. Um, so I, I guess uh, I, I will start out by saying that um, when I say peace, typically what all of us think is, well, nobody's fighting, right? That's what peace is. That's when, that's when people aren't fighting anymore. That's not what shalom means. Shalom is not a negative value. It doesn't mean just, hey, people aren't fighting anymore. It's, it's a positive or affirmative value. Uh, let me contrast that a little bit more. Uh, so I think that the way we typically think of peace, no, no one's fighting, it leads to kind of a, uh, it, it leads us to think that the absence of conflict means wholesomeness and goodness. Uh, there's a, a German poet, Heinrich Heine, he wrote a uh, kind of a, a funny essay about peace. Uh, he says, I am the most peaceable of men. All I ask for is a humble cottage with a thatched roof, a good bed, good food, fresh milk and butter, flowers before my window, and a few fine trees at my door. And if the Lord wants to make my happiness complete, he will grant me the joy of seeing some six or seven of my enemies hanging from those trees. Before, before their death, I shall forgive them all the wrongs they did me. One must forgive one's enemies, but not before they're hanged. Right? That's peace in the world, right? You, I got what I wanted. Um, Augustus, the, the first emperor of Rome, he, uh, so in, in Rome during his life, there were two great bronze pillars uh, inscribed with what was called the res gesti, the things I did. Right? There's a list of all the things that he said. When I was 19, I raised an army with my own money and defeated the men who killed my father. And he goes on from there. Uh, and one of the things he says is, I, I, I bequeath to the whole world peace. Uh, about a hundred years later, Tacitus, who's a historian, he wrote, uh, to ravage, to slaughter, to usurp under false titles, Augustus called empire. He made a wasteland, and then he called it peace. Right? That, that's, the, that's the idea that, that leads, that's the, uh, those are the consequences of having a negative view of shalom, of peace. John MacArthur, he describes shalom in this way. He says, it means quiet goodness. It conveys the idea, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it is active and aggressive, not just a rest in one's own heart away from troublesome circumstances. It is not the absence of trouble. It is unrelated to circumstances. It is a goodness of life that is not touched by what happens on the outside. It's an affirmative approach to life that says God is making all things right. So let's turn back to our text, uh, or to, uh, to the scriptures. So God, I, I, first of all, shalom encompasses the idea of order. 
What do we find God doing the very first time we see God? Well, let's go to Genesis 1.1. We should always start at the beginning, I think. In the beginning, right, it says, we all know this one, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water, and and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And of course, we know the story from there, right? God begins to impose order on the world through the spoken word. Shalom encompasses the idea that things should not be uh, without form. They should not be chaotic. In Hebrew, the, uh, the, word for, uh, the, the words that we get that are translated without form and void are tohu vawohu. Wild and waste. The world was chaotic. It was wild and wasted. And God, God filled it with life and imposed order on it. Um, and we find that through, that's thematic throughout the Bible. God is always bringing order into the world and imposing order on the world and creating, uh, creating the way that the world works. And when we move in alignment with that order, we find that we reach shalom. So, it also means payment. So, let's turn to Exodus 21. And I'm, I'm sorry, for those of you that don't know me, I waste about three-quarters of the lesson uh, going, moving from place to place. But Exodus 21, 33 through 34. And you're going to say, what does this have to do with anything? Uh, and if a man shall open a pit, or if a man shall dig a pit and not cover it, and an ox or an ass fall therein, the owner of the pit shall make it good and give money unto the owner of them, and the dead beast shall be his. And you say, what in the world does that have to do with peace? Well, the word, um, uh, the word in verse 34, shall make it good, is shalom. It means to make someone whole, right? And, and not in this case, it's in a, like a restitutionary sense, right? Like in a monetary sense. You did something wrong, you're going to pay that person and make them whole. You're going to make up for the harm that you did them. But it also means uh, like uh, um, what would happen when you recover from a surgery or what would happen when you stop smoking or what would happen when your arm gets set and then heals. You're becoming whole. All right? you, you are achieving shalom. And in fact, um, vaha shalom is how you say hello, or how you ask somebody how they're doing uh, in Hebrew. How's your shalom? Is, is, is what you would say, like literally, how's your shalom? It's like, uh, uh, how are you in Japanese is ogenki deska. Uh, are, how are you healthy? Right? It's a weird way to ask somebody, like, but it's, it's kind of the same concept, right? Like, how's how is your, are, are you moving in alignment with God's plan? Is kind of what you're being asked. So let's continue. Um, I, we won't turn to it because uh, we read through it uh, a few weeks ago. I, I, I taught a, a whole series on Leviticus. Many of you will recall that there was, uh, in the rules that are in Leviticus, there's a, um, a year that is supposed to happen every 50 years. It's the year of Jubilee. Right? All debts are forgiven. Everything is wiped away. Land, land that was sold is returned to the people who owned it in the first place. Um, 
you know, it's, it, it's a, a time of great renewal um, and a time when everybody kind of gets back into alignment with God's purposes. That is referred specifically to as, as a time of shalom in Leviticus 25.10. It's a good question, but I don't know. Um, I mean, certainly it didn't meet the biblical requirements for for Jubilee, right? I mean, they had. I haven't been to I haven't been to Israel, but I bet they have credit cards there, and I bet they don't get forgive. I bet they didn't get forgiven in 1948 or in 1998. So, um, okay, sorry. Uh, and then it also means. Right, like ceasing conflict with one another. And I'm not going to go through all the verses because I don't think I... I have about five more minutes of your attention, I think. Uh, but uh, if we were to look in Genesis 43, 27, 1 Samuel 25, 16, uh, and Joshua 10, 21, you would see that it means not, not just ceasing hostilities, right? Not just stopping a fight between two people, but the idea is that they then begin to cooperate. Right? They move into a posture of friendship and alignment with one another and with God. It's, it's more than don't fight. Uh, and then finally, oh, and then so the, it kind of has all those meanings, right? The idea of order, of mending, of, of uh, what we would normally think of as peace, uh, cooperation, right orientation. Um, the dimensions of shalom, though, are, are uh, there's a multitude of dimensions. The, the first is external, right? Like you're at peace with others, right? You're, uh, and whether that's between nations, whether that's between uh, people in the community, doesn't matter. It's, there's this external dimension. There's an internal dimension. You, you are healthy. Uh, you have the right outlook. You have the right connection and, and alignment with God. And there's an eternal dimension. Uh, let's turn to Isaiah, chapter 9. Th- this one's well known, I'm sure, but um, we'll look at verse 6. Actually, let's go back to verse... Nope, let's go to verse 6. Uh, and this is Isaiah prophesying about Messiah. And doing some other things, but he's prophesying about Messiah. And he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. Um, And then let's turn to Philippians 4. 4 through 7. This is Paul writing from prison. Uh, And in some ways, this book is all about shalom, uh, about the the search for peace in difficult circumstances. Uh, Right? Paul says, uh, amongst other things, uh, he's learned to be content wherever he is. He's learned to have shalom, to understand himself as aligned with God's purpose in whatever circumstance he finds himself. 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The idea here, right, is that, that Christ is the, is the eternal expression of God's promise of shalom. He is the, the method and the means through which we come into alignment with God's ultimate purpose for us. Um, and you say, what's this have to do with this original story uh, in Judges? Well, uh, I, I talked a little bit about the, that pattern that keeps happening in Judges as we read it, right? Judges uh, is it's my favorite book in the Bible, uh, just because it has a really compelling story, and, and you can kind of detect this. It's the, it's the first time I remember reading the Bible and thinking, I, I know what the author is trying to communicate, right? Because you see that this pattern is very clear, I could see the hand of the author writing to me. Um, and in the history that is described in that book, God is talking to Gideon, right? He's saying, look at the mess you guys are in. And Gideon asks the question, why don't we see any miracles anymore? What happened? And God says, I'm telling you what happened. I just told you in the same chapter what happened. I just told you. It, this is going to keep happening as long as you guys depart from, from the, the path and the way that I've set. Um, Judges is about dissolution and death and the disintegration of, of the Israelite nation. It's about uh, the Israelites becoming the Canaanites. And in the midst of all that, God appears to Gideon and says to him, this is the way to peace. Right? This is how you get back into alignment with my purpose. This is how you achieve shalom. And, and Gideon naming the, all, the, that place, Jehovah Shalom, is an exact recognition that God is peace. Right? Alignment with God is the only way they are going to obtain wholeness as a nation. So that, that I think, is the, the, the message and the reason behind that name of God there. So what's this mean for us? Um, that means a couple things. Uh, one, uh, right, like it says, uh, I believe in Colossians, to the extent it's up to you, live peaceably with all men. Live in shalom with all men. That's the hardest message in all the Bible. There's some people I'm really angry at, like pretty much all the time. Uh, and being at peace with them, being in shalom with them, is not just saying, well, I'm not, I, I will not punch that guy's lights out when I see him. It's, I, I have to love him like a brother. I, you must, in order to move into alignment with God's purposes, you, you have to see and love and know people as God does. And boy, that's hard. Our, our flesh wars against it continually in all that we do. Um, it, is, it is so difficult. Um, to overcome that barrier, but uh, it, it's the ultimate way to the kind of peace that God is talking, that, that Christ promised and that Paul is talking about in Philippians. So that's one, uh, and probably the biggest one. The second is, uh, I would say, take a, uh, a more, uh, I, I guess, a, a, a you know, kind of hippie person would say a holistic view, but th think of yourself um, as uh, think about how you can be more in alignment with God's purposes for your life. And that's your, your whole body, 
right? I, all of us know temporary moments of peace sometimes, right? Like uh, you just had a great day at work. You got a really good night sleep. The kids didn't, the kids are sleeping in late Saturday. You open up your eyes. Your wife's fixing bacon. Your husband's fixing bacon. You can smell it wafting in. Uh, your, your knee's been hurting you forever and it feels great. Um, you know, you, you, you just, you feel really, maybe you feel very contented in that moment. That's not shalom. That'd be cool if it was, like if that was how you felt all the time, but that's not, that's not shalom. Shalom is a way of viewing the world, right, and a way of acting in accordance with it. Paul was in prison. I, I, I doubt he had very many good days, but he said he felt at peace. Right? He wrote to them, persisting in Christ is, under, is to understand peace. 